0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a better
1: way.
2: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 3rd, 2014. And this is episode 1311 of the Survival Podcast. And it's not Friday, 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 but you know what happened on Friday, Friday, Friday? Well, I had to take care of some things Um, with some issues that were going on that are not bad. Um, They were just uh, very, uh, it was like a -a whack-a-mole and progress at the same time. Let's put it that way. So I preempted the Friday, Friday, Friday show on Friday and I promised to do the Friday, Friday show on Monday, Monday, Monday. And that's what we're going to do. For those that are new and wondering, what is this crazy survival guy talking about? On Fridays, we do listener call shows. This is where you call in to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK, it's not a live show, it's a podcast, so you get a voice recording, you leave me a message, and you ask me a question, or you ask a member of our expert council a question, and then uh, you know, hopefully within a week or two, you hear your call on the air and you get an answer. They don't all get on the air, but a lot of them do. Uh, I've got eight I'm taking myself today, and then I think I've got six from expert council members, two with Keith Snow. One with new council member Michael Jordan from a bee-friendly company, a.k.a. the Bee Whisperer. Uh, I also have for you a a question being answered by Stephen Harris and one by Ben Falk. These are all members of our expert council, uh, again, for new listeners. And the way you do an expert council call is you call 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And uh, you say, hi, Jack, this is so-and-so. I'm calling with a question for expert council member fill-in-the-blank. My question is da-da-da-da-da-da. And then you hang the phone up, and the thing comes to me. And if you want to make sure that your call gets on the air for a council member, you email me right away, com. You put expert council call in the, uh, subject line, and you say, Jack, I just called in from number XYZ, and with a, with an expert council call for expert council member, blah, blah, blah. And then I dig that out and give it a priority. You can see all of our expert council members at the end of every post. If you go to today's episode, again, 1311, down at the bottom, you'll see our expert council, and I have a big announcement today. I mentioned Michael Jordan, aka the Bee Whisperer from a Bee Friendly Company. Many of you probably went, wait a minute, I don't remember him being on the expert council. Well, he expressed an interest in it, and this is the most switched-on human being on planet Earth I know about bees, and just one hell of a solid human being. So Michael Jordan has been added to the expert council today, officially, and has already got an answer for you. Two guys that have just added as well do not have answers for you, but they've both been on the show and were well-received, and... Uh, I see them as places we could use some help. So, John Pugliano of Investable Wealth is now on the Council for Investing and Finance Questions and Gary Collins for Health and Nutrition, specifically from P- Primal and Paleo. But I think this guy can answer just about anything for you based on his education and his background, uh, with a, you know, a degree and, and, and additionally having served as an FDA agent and willing to kind of talk honestly about governmental policy and nutrition, at least to the level that he can without putting himself in jeopardy. Anyway, so those guys are all at it. So new council members at it today. John Pugliano, Gary Collins, and Michael Jordan on wealth and investing, health and nutrition, and all things bees. Keep trying to make the things around here better for you guys. And, uh, that's just one way. Expanding the expert council, changing things around a little bit and trying to shore up the areas where we have kind of holes where we don't really have somebody and uh, frankly in some instances maybe calling a few people out because well they don't answer the questions you guys ask and I send it and I don't get it back and sometimes it's because people are busy uh but that's fine but I you know I want to put people on the council that if you guys make a call for I can you know be pretty sure that they're going to actually answer them for you anyway with that um let's take care of the rest of our housekeeping before we get to your calls Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, J.M. Bullion. Um, I had a sponsor for years in silver and gold. It's one of the few sponsors that I ever actually had um, for any length of time that's not still here. I would say that all but three of my sponsors, no, four, I've had since the day they signed up and they've never gone. Two have been uh, situations where you just got to a point with them with costs, and they were such small companies they they just really couldn't afford to do business with us anymore. Even though I think I keep my rates very very low, um, and I think it's insanely low how how low I keep my rates. But you know, money is money, and you either have it or you don't. So I had two that went went to the wayside. That one way, had two that were just like I can't do business with you people anymore. Uh, and one was a silver and gold person who had done a great job for a number of years for the audience, but got wrapped up in a network marketing scam. Um, and was emailing her whole customer base, which by that time was largely my audience, uh, with this network marketing scam. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore, and I let that sponsor go. And then I said, well, I, I really need a sponsor for silver and gold. So I reached out to a few companies that I knew had good value and good shipping policies. Monix and Atmex came to mind, and I couldn't talk to anybody there that gave a shit um, about doing something It's not that they weren't willing to, but I, like you know I'm talking to some third tier marketing guy or something like that and I'm like, this is not going to work. I need to know especially with silver and gold that if something's not right, I can send an email or make a phone call and, and unclog the work so to speak. Found JM bullion. found this guy Michael. said well, what do you do? He's like I'm the company owner and president. Okay, let's take a look at your site. Let's take a look at your history. Great reputation, great selection. Let's check your pricing. Better than Monix and AppMex on like 90% of the items. Okay, we can do business. And with that, the relationship with Jam Bullion was formed. He's done a great job of taking care of you guys ever since. We all know we need some silver and gold in our lives. Great place to find it, Jambullion.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. You know, survivalism... Is something that's always getting labeled as, you know, guns and and military style things and stuff like that. And that's certainly not all we're about today. If you're new to the show, you'll hear an amazing assortment of topics today. But the gun is important. It's the equalizer. It's part of our American heritage, for those of you that do listen here in America. And our Constitution actually recognizes our right to self-defense and to the keeping and bearing of arms. And it's Not been very frequent that any government has ever had the balls to recognize that in their citizens, and certainly you can see that many in government have tried to take it away. So owning firearms and knowing how to use them is important, but the knowing how to use them is more important than most people realize. That doesn't mean you know how your gun works. You can take it apart, you can clean it, you can shoot it, you can hit your target. It means that you really understand that if you ever get into a situation of deadly combat, that the gun is just another martial arts weapon, just like a sword, just like a bow staff gun just has greater range and more ability to take life, so it has to be taken more seriously. Well, the operator component of that is what makes the art martial, And if you're looking for a guy that can teach you that philosophy and make you very, very effective, and more importantly, since you only go do this kind of training for like a week at a time or a couple days at a time, train you to train yourself when you get home. Get over to FortressDefense.com and book some training with Frank and his incredible cadre of instructors. Now remember, if you can't travel to his school, you put together a group, he can travel to you and do the training at a local range. Check him out today again, FortressDefense.com. Next up today, Old Grouch Military Surplus, not an official sponsor. Sponsor stable's full. Can't fit anybody else in, but I love Tim from Old Grouch, and uh, Tim Glancy just an amazing guy. He's on our expert council as well, and he has, you know, this incredible store with his father. Uh, One of the few true military surplus stores left, you know, they're not selling a bunch of Chinese junk and calling it Army Surplus, a true surplus store. And if you are a member of our support brigade, you get 10% off all orders from the, uh, you know, with the discount code from the MSB. Uh, so, if you haven't checked out old Grouch, man, check them out. On that note, consider joining the members' support brigade. That's how you support the show and the work that we're doing here at TSP. And uh, it comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, your prior service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys do qualify for a discount if you email me before, not after you join service, discount in the subject line. Email jack at the com. That is my real email. I do get all the email that goes there unless the spam monster consumes it. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, it is the best way to get in touch with me. It is better than Facebook forums, LinkedIn, all that other stuff. I do mess around with that because you guys will want to con- contact me there. Um, but I think I do my friend request uh, acceptance on Facebook like once a quarter or something like that. I don't check messages there. I pretty much check our page and make sure that I'm answering stuff that comes up there. You want to get in touch with me, email is the way to go. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. All of the information that we cover on the show, show notes, links, etc., are always available at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And for those of you in different parts of the country, you might say thesurvivalpodcast.com. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Um, today's episode 1311, so as we start the show, let's take a look at history so that maybe we can learn from the past as we examine the present and the future. So since it's episode 1311, the year is 1311. And Alex Shrug has done an amazing job, as always, at tspwiki.com. Again, tspwiki.com. That's our survival Wikipedia run by our community. And this is where Alex posts his history segments. He's got three great ones today. The one I'm going to take is called Removing the King's Power Rather Than Removing the King last year king edward ii of england was faced with a dilemma accept restrictions on his power or die at the hands of the barons today the king signed the ordinances of 1311 that will work similar to the oxford provisions of 1258 a committee will remove the king's expe- review the king's expenditures and require a clean sweep of the administration unfortunately it is easier to pass a law than to make it work a few of the king's friends will be shown the door, but the underlying bureaucracy will remain. The ordinances will be repealed in 11 years, but one ordinance will remain. All money shall go through the office of the exchequer. My take by Alex Shrugged. As you can imagine, the office of the exchequer became a very powerful office. Other parts of the government end up reserving rooms located in the office of the exchequer, including many barons and judges. It is considered a good place to keep secrets. One can speculate it as to a possible conspiracy, but it is strictly circumstantial. The office must have survived because it served the purposes of everyone. Well, everyone that was in on the take, I guess. The office of the Exchequer was designed to put limitations on the king's ability to just take in money and spend it willy-nilly and create an accountability back to the people from which it was taken. And it was put in place to do that, and it became a great big giant bureaucracy. And it was a place where all of the insiders, like judges and business people and stuff like that, and a very powerful elite, would all go to meet together to further screw over the people. Which basically is trying to tell you something, folks. When you're expecting government to limit government, you're expecting the fox to look after your hens. With that, let's go ahead and take our first call of the day.
3: Hey, Jack, it's Jesse in San Diego. Uh, quick question. What's a good way to deal with
2: snails eating my comfrey and my uh, broccoli and stuff? Uh, I can't run ducks or anything through my front yard, especially not on my lot.
3: And I really don't want to build little miniature electric fences to keep them out of the garden beds.
2: Uh, so any help you could uh, offer be uh, appreciated. Thanks, man. Thanks for all you do. Uh, talk to you soon. That's so a question from an informed person that would know two of the things that I would say you could do, uh, both of which come really largely from the work of Bill Mullison, uh, stating always if you have a snail or slug uh, surplus, you don't have a sn- snail problem or a slug problem. You have a, a duck deficiency, and if you had a duck, you know a duck balance, then you'd have a snail and slug balance, and it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, but you can't have ducks, and I totally understand that, especially in residential areas. Ducks are noisy. They're muddy, they make a mess, and um, they're really not the best animal in most suburban environments, even if it's okay. Other than probably khaki campbells will work out okay for you. They're kind of quiet and cool and a good egg layer, but most of your ducks are just not that great for suburban environments, and certainly something more likely to... Tick off a neighbor who will call the man than a chicken will, even. And in the front yard, especially, you really, you know, you can't kind of keep it, you know, quiet and, and, and away from eyes that don't need to see things. So I get that. Electric fences. Let me just tell you the, the story of the electric snail fence. So, what Bill Mollison suggests is you take a bunch of PVC pipe and you rip it in half. And you only need, like, you know, three quarter inch pipe or half inch pipe, even. So that basically you've created a half of a pipe that'll lay flat on the ground. And you You put this stuff out all around the area you want to protect it. You put some little screws on the top, and from screw to screw to screw, you run copper wiring. And then you just hook up like a standard 9-volt battery to it. Now, if you touch that in the ground, it's not going to do anything at all. But if you're a wet, slimy little slug, and as you're crawling over the plastic, you contact your face or your little eyes. If you think about a slug's eyes coming up, To that wire, and you're nice and wet, and a really good conductor. Guess what? You're not a happy snail or slug anymore, and you're going somewhere else. So those were the two main, you know, solutions. And you understand, like people like Bill, they're talking about like protecting farms, commercial operations, and things like that a lot of times. And they're they're going to like the like this is how simple the solution could be because they're trying to fight using really heavy pesticides and stuff like that, and sometimes. That kind of, you know, it gets lost on the suburban spaces, smaller spaces. So one thing you can do, you said garden beds. So this tells me you have actually defined beds. So you actually don't need the power from a battery, and you don't really need um, the piping. If you were to do something like get copper foil and cap your beds, if they were, you know, wooden beds, and you got, like, thin copper roll, and just capped the beds with copper, it would look cool, tack it down with copper nails, let it patina, and just that alone, they don't like that. It creates kind of an electrical thing going on for them as a a whole. So that would be one thing you could do. The other thing is, if you got the same type of material, some copper, and put it around the plants that they're really giving a hard time to, that actually would be quite useful. Um, Another thing you could do is if you can get a good supply of sawdust, Um, if you put down wood mulch, it's great, but it is a good home for snails and slugs in environments where there's an abundance of them. But if you put down sawdust as your mulch and you can still use wood mulch in certain areas, but around the stuff that they like to tear up, you mulch it with a thick layer of sawdust and they crawl in that. Now think about a snail and think about its wet, slimy, sticky nature what do you think happens to it when it crawls through sawdust? It like sticks to them. It's uncomfortable. It would be, like, be like you oiling yourself up with suntan oil, right? And before it dries, you roll around naked in the, the dry sand at the beach, right? And then put your clothes back on and then get in a car and drive somewhere and go on about your day like that. Like You wouldn't be real hip on that. You wouldn't want to be there, and you you probably would only do that once, especially if it got in certain nether regions or something like that. Well, for the snail, it's going all over the nether regions. They don't like it. So that's probably your easiest low-input thing is to find a local cabinet manufacturer or wood shop or something like that and get sawdust, and, and it's just another form of organic mulch uh, that will do a lot for you. And when you get a lot of rain events and things like that, everything's wetted down, Keep some of it and go out after, you know, your, your initial puddling and it all goes away and throw some dry stuff on top of it. And uh, it, it's it's not going to get 100% rid of your problem, but it's probably the best answer I could give you. With that, let's take another
4: call. Hello, Jack. This is Brent from Michigan. Long-time listener, second-time caller. Um, I'm calling to ask you how I can naturally control Japanese beetles. Um, they're tearing up my fruit trees that I've planted, and um, I just wanted to see if there's any way that naturally I can um, control them. I've tried the Home Depot's Japanese beetle traps, and they seem to attract quite a lot, and you catch quite a lot, but there seems to be plenty to go around still by eating on my fruit trees. I just wanted to see what you had to say about it. I appreciate the help, and keep up the good work, Jack. See you. Bye.
2: I guess as we head into spring, and with that said, it was 14 degrees this morning when I got up, and we've got stuff frozen everywhere. But as we head into spring, more and more people are concerned with garden pests, so we get two garden pest questions in a row. This one on Japanese beetles. Japanese beetle is a problem for a variety of reasons, a, a very big one being it ain't supposed to be here, right? It's not, it's not a native to our climate, so it doesn't have a lot of native predators. Secondly, it's an armored little thing. You know, it's like a little tank. If you if you catch one, it's got real heavy-duty uh, kind of little insect armor plate. So a lot of things that might otherwise eat it don't eat it because, well, they can't get in to eat it. It's hard. So I'd rather eat something I like than something I don't like. Or, you know, if you think about it, um, crab is pretty good stuff, right? We like crabs. But they have a shell and they'll bite us. Well, we have you know the ability to catch them and steam them up and make them all red and delicious and Old Bay seasoning and crack them open and make it a little bit easier. But it's still a little bit of a pain in the butt to eat crab. So you only eat crab so often, even though it's delicious, because it takes extra work to do so. So you know if I compare that to something like, I don't know, a nice delicious chicken from my backyard... It's a little bit easier to cook and feed on a chicken than it is a crab. So a lot of you know predators that might even consider a Japanese beetle it, it will just be like, well, if there's not something more in abundance. Now, the one animal that I've seen that's just dynamite on Japanese beetles are wrens, little bitty birds. I'm talking about these little birds that are about the size of like a big-ass peanut, uh, like a Jenny wren and, and other little wren species. And I don't have Japanese beetles here in Texas at all, but up in Pennsylvania where I grew up with my grandfather, they were a real problem. And uh these little Jenny Wrens, you'd see them down in our driveway and we had like a gravel driveway, and they'd be down there like beating the hell out of something. And you're like, What what what's it what's that bird doing? You know? You got this little bitty bird, you know, that's the size of probably two peanuts to be fair, and it's throwing around something that looks like about the size of a big pea or a bean. And you go down there later, and there's little Japanese beetle wings everywhere. So, one thing you might try is finding out the various wrens that are in your climate and, you know, look up actually what their preferred nesting box size dimensions are. Birds are, you know, they're opportunistic when they find a place to nest, but certain birds, if you build something of certain dimensions with a certain size entrance hole and at a certain height, you're a lot more likely to, uh, to attract them. And my grandfather, having noticed this, you know, this is a permaculture technique, observe and interact. He didn't know what permaculture was, but he got that. Uh, years earlier, had gone and put little wren houses all over the property. We had them up on top of the thing that we hang, hung the clothesline from. We had them on top of the grapevines. We had them all over the place. And uh, up on the top of the trellis is what I'm talking about with the grapevines and, and a few trees he had them in. So there was probably on this little place, it was about an acre and a half, probably 30 or 40 wren houses. We had wrens everywhere. The other bird that I saw that would uh, eat Japanese beetles was a bird called a cat bird. I've never seen one in Texas, but they make a sound like a cat. You're in the east, I think, and I think that would probably be a bird that's in your area. But I don't know much about how to attract them. We just had them everywhere, and, and they would occasionally at least tear up some beetles. So that's one thing you could try. The other thing you can try is mechanical control. Um, the thing about Japanese beetles that makes them a little less devastating than other insects is they are so big that you can walk around with like a can with some soap water in it and just pluck them off and throw them in there. And uh, you know, let the soapy water do its work, and eventually throw them in a compost heap and turn them into fertilizer. With that said, so now, as I think back to the time where I had Japanese beetles in around uh, my grandfather's place, there were two places that I would find most of them. My grandfather, my grandmother—I'm sorry, my grandmother—had beautiful rose bushes. Uh, they were partially beautiful because. Every spring I would go catch, you know, I think it was like 38 sunfish. There were 38 bushes down the line of the property. I'd go catch 38 little sunnies and bring them home, and I would bury one under every bush, and she would give me like five bucks to do that. I would have done that for free. I mean, catching and killing little fish and making them into fertilizers is fun when you're like 10. But um, those rose bushes, these were hardy, old roses these are not your new hybrid you know delicate roses this was these bushes were older were older than i am now at the time that i was a kid taking care of them and i think they're still there i haven't been home in a long time but last time i was home these bushes were still in existence it was one of the few things that my dad still kind of you know at least keeps the upkeep on and they would be covered with japanese beetles and i would go out and pick the beetles and the other place was the grapevines. My grandfather had some really old, gnarly-looking Concord grapevines. These things were probably fifty or sixty years old as well. And there was very little beetle problem in the garden because, for some reason, they liked the roses and the grapes. Well, the roses and the grapes grew so fast, and with me going out, you know, once every couple of days and, and, and thinning out the beetle population, that they, they were able to recover easily enough. So. That's what's called trap cropping if you do it on purpose. So if you planted some things that they'll eat that won't really hurt you that bad, that will cause them to conglomerate and ignore your other things and be easily mechanically controlled, and then this is a twofold thing. So not only am I mechanically controlling them by killing them, but if I'm doing that and I'm creating concentrations that are easy to pick off on things like roses and grapes... I'm doing that for my wrens as well, so my wrens also are getting in on the mechanical control because they figure out, hey, all I got to do is hang out here around this grapevine, and I can eat enough beetles every day to feed all my babies and be happy. And I don't mind busting them. You know, the the wren is is like you know, like me with crab. I don't care how hard it is. I'll crack crab until I can't move because I like crab so much. So some people are like, I like crab, but it's too much of a pain in the butt. The wren is the crab eater, right? So. Attract the wrens, attract the catbirds, create trap cops, and do some mechanical control. That's the best answer I can give you to Japanese beetles without resorting to toxins. Um, If anybody else has any suggestions on these things, let me know, because I know this is one that plagues a lot of people. Let's take another call.
4: Yes, uh, this is a question for Stephen Harris uh, on the expert council. I was wondering what his opinion would be of using a methane digester, with a storage system to power a whole house um, natural gas generator. Uh, this would be mostly for short-term use, likely after a hurricane and such. Uh, basically, my plan is to bleed off the, the methane into tractor-trailer truck inner tube tires as a storage device, Using multiples of these hooked to a manifold to feed the generator, which would of course then power the house for maybe up to two weeks at the most. Uh, I live in, uh, agricultural zone 9B, so we're warm year round, and, uh, have large herd of, uh, goats, sheep, rabbits, chickens, and are looking to get a couple of cows to add to our homestead here. So I think I should have enough manure. Uh, just like to know his opinion on it. Uh,
2: Thanks. Bye. All right, guys, strap yourself in. Steve put a lot of work into this uh, answer. You're going to be able to consider this answer almost a mini-show in of itself. Steve, what say you uh, – are we in lightsaber mode, or can this actually be done?
5: Hi, this is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Okay, on the count of one, two, three, cue the lightsaber Music. Okay, we have a semi-truck tire. Now, they, it is a semi-truck inner tube. And on the average, they are 48 inches tall, fully inflated. And they have a 20-inch internal diameter. This is what I found for a typical semi-truck tire out there. I looked at all the ones for sale for, like, swimming pools and everything. Now, there are ones bigger than 48 inches, but the average semi-truck tire is inflated to about 48 inches. Now let's say it's inflated to just about twice atmospheric pressure, so let's say 30 PSI. Now one atmosphere is 14.7 PSI. The volume of a toroid, and that is what a semi-truck tire is, is it's a toroid, is 2 times pi squared times r prime times r squared. r prime is 34 inches, r is 14 inches, so the volume of an inner tube this size is 131,400 cubic inches. This is equal to 76 cubic feet. This is the important number. Since we're at two atmospheres of pressure, that's twice atmospheric pressure that we have that we're breathing right now, this is equal to 152 cubic feet of air or methane or gas inside the inner tube. Now, since Uh, your methane digester puts out about 60% methane and 40% carbon dioxide in the the gas. There are about 600 BTUs of natural gas per cubic foot. So this will equal 91,200 BTUs per inner tube. So 91,200. There are 115,000 BTUs per gallon of gasoline. So that big inner tube at 30 psi is like having... 80% of a gallon of gasoline of fuel for your generator. This is to put it into perspective for you. Now, an 11-kilowatt natural gas Generac whole house generator at half load is 6.5 kilowatts. Now, on these generators, it does not much matter with this type of generator if you're running a four watt night light through chase away monsters or you're running an air conditioner. It's going to use a certain amount of natural gas no matter what. So at half load, which would be s- suitable for your entire house, it uses 124 cubic feet per hour. Now this is natural gas, pure natural gas, and that's a thousand BTUs per cubic foot. So I just can't use your 152 cubic feet number for the inner tube. I have to adjust this BTU for BTU. So it needs 124,000 BTUs per hour and you have 91,200 BTUs in an inner tube. So you'll need 1.35 inner tubes full of gas per hour. Now that sounds fairly reasonable. One, you know, just one and a half inner tubes per hour or one and a third inner tubes per hour. Okay, but let's put this in perspective. <laughs> You're saying that you want this for a short term use and you define short term use <laughs> as two weeks after a hurricane. Okay, I can see you wanting power for two weeks after a hurricane, though that's not really quite short term use. So I assume, since it's a whole house generator, you'll be running this thing all the time for a whole day, 24 hours. Uh, so if you ran this for 24 hours, you'd need 33 inner tubes full of biogas. Now, for two weeks, 33 inner tubes a day times 14, and this is 457 inner tubes of gas to power the house that you'd have to make the biogas for and save up and put away for a rainy day in your inner tubes. Of course, there, you got to understand, the methane digester is a low-pressure device. So there's not this amount, this amount of pressure, two atmospheres, coming off the methane digester. You're not just going to bleed off gas from the digester into inner tubes. You're going to have to use a regular type of air compressor to suck the methane out of the digester and put it into all of your 457 inner tubes. Now, if you stacked up 457 inner tubes, it'd be about 1,066 feet tall. To put this into perspective, the Empire State Building is 1,250 feet tall. So you have almost the entire height of the the Empire State Building in inner tubes. So if you're going to attempt this, you would want an in-ground methane digester. This is where you feed in the manure at one end, and instantly on the other end, you get fertilizer out. This is ma- this is manure that's been digested for about two or three weeks, and the, the unit is always full. Once you fill it up, it's always full, okay? So you put in 5, 10, 15 gallons of manure in one end, you instantly get 5, 10, 15 gallons of fertilizer for your garden out on the other end. And this is the best nitrogen-rich fertilizer you could get for permaculture. So. If you want to do this, all of this is in explicit detail in a book I have called Biogas 3, as in the number three. In the 1970s, China had tens of millions, someplace between 40 and 50 million of, of these digesters running in their country, in the rural areas, and they were providing gas for light and for cooking. They work great. You can take this gas and run it through a pipe to a um a mantle and mantle and it'll glow you can light it and it'll burn it, this stuff really works so this book is all about how the chinese did it it's a very good read with lots of illustrations you can modify uh and bury a big stock tank like a 2500 gallon one into the ground or you can dig a hole by hand or with a backhoe and you can line the floor and the wall with bricks and then you make a, a brick dome and you can make the digester that way. The book is called Biogas 3, It's and it's located in the Where Do I Start section of knowledgepublications.com. That's knowledgepublication dot com. Uh, check the MSB area for a 15% discount coupon on all my books and DVDs on the site. I mean, you know what? Never mind, trying to remember, knowledgepublications.com. You can go to solar1234.com, and at the very top in the left there will be a KP logo, KP as in knowledge publications. Just click on it, and then you'll be dropped into knowledge publications. Go to the, the top button on your left that says, where do I start? And scroll down to you see Biogas 3, click on add to cart, and you're going to be one happy person. Now, while running a whole house generator in biogas that you made might be an Empire State Building full of suckiness, if I ran my Honda EU2000i off of that biogas in one inner tube, it would run for seven and a half hours off of one inner tube of biogas. That's a good 500 watts for almost eight hours, okay? That's all the power you really need in a grid-down situation. That's more than you could need in a grid-down situation. You'd be thrilled to have 500 watts for eight hours a day of generator power, especially if you had a battery bank. So let's take the whole house generator idea and flush it down the manure digester, and let's be smart. Go listen to my class on how to power your house from your car at solar1234.com and learn how to power only the things that you need to have powered. Listen to my Battery Bank 1 and Battery Bank 2 class at battery1234.com and learn even more about how to power only what you need and learn how to make a battery bank for your home. Between the biogas, the generator, and a battery bank, You could power your house all day on just one inner tube of biogas. That's what you get when you use your energy smart. Now, you'd only use 14 inner tubes for two weeks of power. This is using energy smart. And remember, your methane digester, if you're this gentleman in such a manure-rich environment, oh, God, that could be construed a lot of ways. Anyways, this gentleman in a manure-rich environment, your methane digester would still be producing methane, while you're using your inner tube, so you would have a really good source of energy. Now, this is going to take a fair amount of methane, okay? We're talking about, you know, five, ten cows a day worth of methane. That would be, I don't know how many goats that would be. I can't do the conversion of cows to goats. That's not my area of math, mathematics, but uh, just measure the poundage coming out of each one, and you can get an equivalency. Now, if you did not want a below-ground biogas generator, wanted to start out with a smaller one on top of the ground, one that's made with a 30-gallon drum upside down inside of a 55-gallon drum, that's all there's to it, that you load up with manure, then you can run this to an inner tube as well. Then you want the biogas one and two book. Just go to solar1234.com, click on the KP logo, and click on the top left button that says where to start. Scroll down, and you can get both books uh, halfway down if you really want a great education. Now, by coincidence, my very, very first, shack, first show I did with Jack. Shack is a combination of show and Jack. I guess I just made a new word. So my very, very first show with Jack was on biogas and methane digestion and methane generation. If you'd like to listen to this very first show I did and all of my shows, you can go to solar1234.com and scroll all the way down to the very bottom of the screen, and you'll see all of my earlier shows that I did with Jack. All of the more recent shows are at the very top. The older ones are at the bottom. So if you want to learn more about biogas, go there and listen in. It's a great 60 minutes on nothing but biogas. I think you'll really enjoy it. Now, I really want to thank everyone who came to the battery bank workshop at Jack Spearco's location in Texas in the previous weekend. It was a total blast. And we made three awesome truck battery banks. And each one was different because each person had a different application. There was one for jacks. It was a traditional one. Then there was Teddy. He had a Goldwing box with, you know, that opened up at each end. And then Mike had a real shallow box that the battery just barely fit into. He wanted to put his jack into it. So it was all sorts of different stuff. And I'm going to send out an email with all the stuff we did in this class. It's full of photos. I think I'll throw in a great video overview of the whole thing. If you'd like to get this email, just go to solar1234.com, scroll down a bit, and click on any of the big orange, click here to join our private email list buttons, and you'll get a notification of of this class. Uh, not of this class, but of this web page I'm making with all of the photos and the video and everything for, from the class. I think you'll really enjoy it, especially the picture of three guys underneath the pickup truck simultaneously doing wiring with just their feet sticking out. That, that's hilarious. Now, would you like to make your own battery bank uh, like we did at the workshop? I'm going to tell you a little secret. We had room for 24 students in the workshop, but we only had 16 sign up and come. And Jack and I were talking about this. It's like, why did we only get 16 students? And we thought we were going to fill it up. We didn't think it was because anyone thought they were going to be scared of me because Jack's dogs weren't running away from me, and I'm not that fearsome in in person. Um, But Jack said, Steve, I think you just made the DVDs way too darn good and that anyone who wanted to make a battery bank already got the DVD and made one. So this is possibly true, and if you'd like to make a battery bank, you can listen to the whole podcast for nothing, or you can get the four and a half hours of video I made on how to do it step-by-step, and that's at battery1234.com. If you want to buy the video, MSB members, go to MSB area, you can get the coupon and get $10 off. Uh, But like I said, you can listen to the podcast I did with Jack, both of them, for free, or you can get the video if you so desire. You guys are awesome. I love doing the questions. I love the workshop. I love working with you guys and Jack. Please pick up the phone and call in some more questions for me. I promise not to play the lightsaber music on you. Thank you very much. Talk to you later, guys.
4: Hey, Jack. This is Chad from West Tennessee. I was wondering if you could talk about the tax advantages of starting your own small business and how that could help you uh, reduce your tax burden and maybe get some more deductions and everything. Thank you. Bye.
2: Well, there's some real tax advantages to running your own business. There's some real tax consequences to running your own business too, though. And let me just say straight up front, I don't think anybody should ever be tempted into creating a small business solely for the purpose of tax advantages. And I mentioned you know, breaking a relationship up with a sponsor um, at the beginning of today's show over a network marketing thing, an MLM thing. And I don't hate MLM in and of itself, but in general, it almost always goes bad. It's like the thing that can work that almost never does. And one of the things that happens in this type of thing where your, your goal is always, no matter what they say, more to recruit somebody to sell than to actually sell a product Um You get to a point where like you need to do that to make money, so you start coming up with reasons that this person should become a member, whether or not it really is a good fit. And One is just simply, hey, you'll be in your own business and you'll get tax advantages. That type of thinking, for any reason, MLM or not, is not the way to approach being in business for yourself. Being in business for yourself should be designed specifically to earn a profit. And if it's not going to earn you a profit, eventually at least, frankly, it's not worth doing. Now, let's talk about tax consequences before we talk about tax advantages. And I'll tell you the one place this isn't true. If you are an employee and you are what's termed a highly compensated employee of a business and you're running, of a company and you're running another company part time and you earn enough money that you reach the Social Security earnings cap on taxation in your job. So Social Security is not like income tax. It doesn't just keep going forever. When you reach a certain threshold, you stop paying it. Your employer is also paying half of it, though. And it's in the round neighborhood of 7%. So if you make $100,000 a year, you pay about $7,000 Social Security, but so does your employer. He matches that, another seven grand. So it's $14,000 actually went to SSI, not seven. That's part of why I try to tell people you're being ripped off more than you know by your government. Now, guess what? Dun, dun, dun. If you make your own money individually, whatever money you take as income, guess who pays the massing social security taxes on it? Ding, ding, ding. That's right. It's you, good customer, or good, good uh, business owner. Yes. So if you start a small business, and you make $100,000 of pro now again, this is profit, of profit that you pay yourself as a wage, or you're running as a sole proprietorship, and the money goes to you, and you make $100,000 of declared income at the end of the year, you now don't owe $7,000 for SSI, you owe fourteen. So to have a tax advantage in that situation, we either have to make enough money by being employed by ourselves, or create enough offsetting expenses that that equals out to to, to zero out at seven percent before we're even at break even. All right, so that's that's it. That's the way that somebody that's selling you this idea never explains it. Now, if you make let's say one hundred and twenty thousand a year and you start a business on the side and you make another fifty from that, it's it's likely that you'll pay no SSI on it during that that transitional period where you have the business over here and the employed world over here, but it's hard. It's hard to work a full-time job and run a business, but many of us have done it. I've done it myself. And in that stage, it's nice because the employer's taking the hit for the other 50%. You're hitting your cap, or even if you're close, let's say you're only $5,000 from your cap with your salary, and then you have this business over here, and you make 50 grand off of it, then you're only going to pay the matching SSI and the base SSI on five till you hit your cap. And then the rest is sheltered from that. Okay. So we got to start with that. Now, what actually really becomes to that tax deductible when you have your own business? That's not something that you probably wouldn't spend money on anyway, right? Because everything I actually spend money on only because I'm in business is a legitimate expense. It's not a tax advantage. So if I have to, if I have to, rent a small office to run my business out of, then, okay, I wouldn't be spending that money in the first place if it wasn't for the business. So it is an expense. It does reduce my tax burden, but it's not a tax advantage it's over not having a business at all. all right? But if I drive to that office and back every day, and I'm going to drive somewhere every day anyway then there are parts of that mileage that can become a tax deduction. If I run my business from my home, and I have a room in my home 100% dedicated to my business, there is a home office expense. It is one of the few legitimate, right up front, actual tax deductions that you will create simply by having and actually running a business, and it usually doesn't add up to that much. But you can do it. Now, if you do it, you better be able to say to any auditor, "Here's the space, here's the square footage, here's what my accountant put together. This space is used solely for the operational functionality of my business, and be able to back that up." It's a subjective thing, but it be it's a real hard thing uh, for them really to make a case that that's not what you're doing with it, you know, unless they. They come over and you and fifteen buddies are sitting there drinking beer and, 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 and having scotch and uh you know smoking cigars. But even if you're doing that, it could be a board meeting, I guess. But you get the point, like don't abuse that one. Um it is noted that sometimes it can be like one of those things that tips you a little closer toward audit, but I think that's more myth than reality. So that's a legitimate tax advantage. Now, if your business includes members of your family and you guys run your business together, Report your income jointly, or you pay other members of your family, like if you pay your wife a salary, or you pay your husband a salary if you're a woman or what have you. Um, then as long as you discuss your business, okay, at all during any meal, it can be a business meal. Now, you gotta be careful you don't abuse this one either. Like if you're going out like every night and doing this, um, you're going to have like a whacked out expense ratio, and that is an audit trigger. But if you're going out, you know, a couple times a month having a meal and the, the dollars you're spending on the meal are kind of in balance with what you'd expect to be spent by, by a business making that amount of money, in other words, if you're making $1,000 a year and you have $5,000 a year in business meals expense, that might not be cool because obviously you have other income and that just starts to th- make things a little wonky. Right, so as long as that seems in balance, if it seems reasonable, you can do that. Now it's not 100% deductible. So if my wife and I go out, sit down, have a meal, where there's husband and wife, but we, you know, during this we sit down, and we say, hey, we got this event coming up, we need to plan that out. Uh, and you know, she pulls out a piece of paper, and makes a list of some things we need to pick up or get done. Really, that's enough. But w- with with our household, we would probably talk a little bit more, and then we would say, okay, now that's not a business expense. But let's say we spent 100 bucks, had a nice night out. Uh, it's a $50 deduction. It's a business meal. It's not a travel expense, right? So that becomes a deduction. Now, the travel expense is another place where, as long as you don't abuse it, it's legitimate. Let's say that you want to go to a conference. As long as you can legitimately say that this conference is is in some way... Beneficial to you as a business person, your travel, your meals, every dollar you spend to go there is deductible, right? So you might go to the conference and might spend also four days that you're at the conference, you're spending half your days sitting on the beach. As long as you've gone to the conference, as long as it's not like you've bullshitted your rental car, if you drove there, your mileage, all of that's deductible. So, you know, you can build a couple... Vacations a year in that you take as tax deductions. You cannot do that unless you're in business for yourself. You, there's really not a lot of ways. Now, if you're part of a professional trade association, it gets a gray area, but most of the time, you know, your company's paying for that if it's legitimate and, but if you're doing it because you've gone into the business of permaculture and you decide, I am going to go to a design intensive like I did last year in Montana and it's a $700 fee to go, and you pay it, it's an expense. You get on an airplane, it's an expense. You rent a car, it's an expense. You go out to eat, it's an expense. And that meal, as part of your travel, subject to some limitations, is a travel expense, and therefore it's deductible in full. Now, review all of this stuff with a CPA before you do it, but what I wanted to give you with this one is kind of the way you have to think about Business and business expenses. And the reality is it comes down to understanding business. Uh, but it's not so simple as I'll just start a business selling Avon or something. And then all of a sudden I'll have like, you know, another $20,000 in tax deductions. I'll start, I'll deduct my car payment. Well, you can't. Even if your business owns your car, you can't deduct your car payment. That's why so many businesses lease. A lease is an expense. A purchase is the acquisition of an asset. and Now we have to depreciate it. So, the the real answer here is if you want to use tax advantages in business, build a business that makes enough money that you can afford good advice from a good CPA to do it right. But there's a lot of little things you can do early on to safeguard a little bit more of your money. Let's take another call.
6: Jack, I have a question for Ben Falk of the Expert Council. Ben, do you have any thoughts on growing sugar maples in a permaculture design? I have a few acres in upstate New York, not far from you, and I would like to produce maple syrup. I sort of consider it the first crop of the spring. Um, But all the resources I can find come from a traditional style of growing. Any thoughts on guilds or other permaculture techniques that can be used to increase the harvest as well as maybe uh, help seedlings get to the point that we could tap them sooner? Thanks again for your help.
2: That's, that's a great question for Ben, and it's certainly not one for me because uh, you can grow a maple in uh, Texas, some species anyway, but uh, you're not going to get sugar maples to do well, and you're certainly not going to get the sap to flow. So I, I know very little about uh, maple syrup and maple uh, syrup operations other than you'd have a tree and you'd boil down the sap and it would run in the spring. Uh, other than that, I'm going to turn it over to our expert council member, Ben Falk. Ben, what say you, sir, on this one?
7: Hi, Jack. Ben Falk here with an attempt to answer your question um, about maple syrup and maple production on just a few acres. Um, I would look at this challenge uh in the following way. First of all, um, on just a few acres, you know, you're not going to um, be doing this commercially. Um, you might, if you had a lot of maple trees, be able to do this, um, you know, in a, in a neighborhood manner. But if you're trying to do a, a, a overall permaculture on a few acres, you know you're going to be de- de- devoting most of that land to fuel wood production and then food and medicine. Um, so I would think of the challenge as something that you want to meet with really a handful of mature trees um, or less. Um, ideally, these are on the north side of your property already. Um, it's worth looking into some of the biggest news actually that's made the maple. Uh, syrup industry uh, headlines in the last number of years, just came out in the last few months from the University of Vermont's Proctor Maple Research Center about the possibilities for actually extracting more sap and overall syrup, sugar, from coppiced saplings, maple saplings, than from mature trees, which is how all maple syrup production is done. And that's really interesting because if that's the case, you could imagine a, essentially a maple syrup coppice orchard, um, that then you, you have the sun, you don't have an overstory, you're not in full shade, so you have the ability to grow maple syrup as a crop within a system that's also producing, you know, dozens of other yields, you know, in, a, in an overall woodland garden, um, you know, hedgerow, agroforestry, silvopasture type of system, forest garden system. Um, without having this giant canopy of maple, um, which you know limits what you can do in the understory. So I would look into that. um that obviously has some challenges in terms of the amount of technology you need. You can't use existing ta- uh, currently used taps, traditional taps or spiles. You have to actually, they haven't made the technology yet, but they've 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 m- they've just done a beta version. We have to basically be able to capture the syrup or the sap. Coming out of the cut stump of the sapling, which will be easy to make, but then you have to rely on your vacuum pressure apparently to get the sap in this way from a, from a cut sapling versus gravity fed from a traditional tap. No, although, um, vacuum pressure is used commercially in almost any commercial operation now, even when it's taps. Um, but that has a, that brings up a host of new possibilities, but I would, um, You know, just remember the overall importance of sugar in the system relative to food, fuel, and medicine. Um, You know, you have to boil 40 gallons of sap to get about a gallon of syrup. So it's very energy intensive. Um, It's not something you're going to make up much of anyways on a few acres. Uh, For homestead use, we tap two trees, two large trees, and we get a gallon of syrup a year, a little more. Um, We can boil it on our wood stove while we're heating and cooking as a side yield and that's basically all the syrup we need but we've cut down our syrup consumption because of that production um, you know it's sugar so it's not it's not a high priority but it sure is nice to have honey is probably a better way to get sugar there's probably more functions uh, and and definitely more medicinal overall more uh, value uh, from getting sugar in the form of honey I think in a permaculture system than maple syrup by by no means does that does that not mean that uh, I don't love maple syrup. I, I sure do. It's amazing, but um, I would think of it as a, as a, a challenge to meet in a very micro scale way, especially if you're on three acres. Best of luck to you.
3: Hey Jack, this is Jack from Ardmore, Oklahoma. I have a question for you about EMP. I've listened to you for a long time. It uh, seems like you're not you don't think that an EMP burst or a weapon or whatever is a really big a threat right now but and there's a lot of talk on the on the news i'm hearing a lot about EMP. um is our threat of an emp is it increasing or just people just kind of flipping out over nothing um maybe i'm reading you wrong maybe uh an emp is you know more imminent than what some people may think i don't know but anyway jack i'd really like to hear your thoughts on an emp um and maybe what we can do to protect ourselves if it
4: is a threat. Uh, thanks a lot, Jack.
2: All right, so because you hear something in the news does not make it valid. Uh, I've played for you some of these clips um, where you hear like just a nonsensical story on every single local news affiliate of every major network in the country all wrapped up into about you know a five-minute period. The same nonsense that... Went out on an AP roll or something like that, and everybody rolled it like it was important because it was topical. So the reason you might hear more about EMP or dog food or train wrecks or the terrorists or sharks or whatever on any given day or... A stupid saying like, don't worry, be happy, or some other freaking nonsense is because the people at the head of the, the ship have decided that's what we're talking about right now, and they usually have an agenda with it. Sometimes it's just simply to convey an idea. Sometimes it's to seat fear into you. Sometimes it's to market a product, um, but it's it's an agenda, and our regular media is centrally controlled. And they are always operating with an agenda. Alternative media is great, but the problem with alternative media is it often uses conventional media and says, well, if they're saying this, there's probably more. Uh, and, you know, the, everybody wants to feel like they are relevant and they have something important to say, and everybody has an agenda. And if one more person tells me just because the podcast called the No Agenda Show it's called the No Agenda Show that those people don't have an agenda, my mind is going to explode. I actually really like those guys and what they're doing. One of their people uh, emails me frequently. He's a great guy. But everybody has a freaking agenda. If you didn't have any agenda at all, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. And it's a matter of how much you let that agenda Come into what you're doing when you're claiming to be educating and informing and entertaining people. And it generally follows this route. I am saying something's dangerous, therefore I must have something dangerous to talk about. Therefore, since these other people are talking about this and this thing sounds really scary, I'm going to point out all the reasons it's going to happen. Now this was already answered by Stephen Harris not long ago, but I can't remember the episode. If somebody can find it for me, I can and make a comment about it. I'll append it into the show notes for you. But he gave a very long answer as to why you shouldn't worry about this. I'm going to give you the short version of that answer, and that that is because first of all, these little puke countries out here with these little uh, nuclear bombs that, that you know, like like Korea, North Korea has, for instance, these 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 nuclear weapons are not capable. From a standpoint of pure power, fusion versus fission weaponry basically, of producing a sizable EMP, no matter where you set it off. okay so that's that's number one. Number two, the weapons that can create a sizable EMP, the EMP burst that they create is no bigger than the place where they fry you like a, an ant under a mic uh, magnifying glass. So if one of these big nukes that actually can set off an EMP, if it's used as designed, I'm going to nuke New York (coughs) as a big mushroom cloud because I'm the evil Russians and the Iron Sheik from 1985 wrestling. Ah, I'm dating myself. But anyway, that boom, and there is an EMP there. There's no doubt. But you'll be inconvenienced for about one nanosecond as your transistor radio doesn't work before you see a blinding flash of light and are vaporized into oblivion. Okay, the, the radiuses are basically the same of immediate and total wiped out death and your transistor radio not working or your, 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 you know, your iPod or whatever you're worried about protecting. So the only way we can create a sizable EMP without totally just flattening the whole country and starting World War III where we shoot back and blow the shit out of whoever blew the shit out of us would be to take one of these big weapons tactically deployed, high in the atmosphere, and set it off. About the only nations that can really do that, could really pull that off, would be us, China, and Russia. And China's maybe, and Russia's probably, and us is probably, probably. So we'd either have to do it to ourselves, or somebody like China or Russia would have to attack us with a nuclear weapon. And I would tell you that they are as likely to shoot a missile into our atmosphere and set off an EMP as they are to actually start an on-the-ground nuclear war with us. So if you're worried about EMP, maybe you should worry about, you know, being nuked first. The reason is this. If one nation uses a nuclear weapon, it allows the other nation to use a nuclear weapon. The thoughts on this is, well, it's more likely that a country would use EMP than actually detonate on the ground because it's a softer way of causing you know destruction of your enemy and it wouldn't result in a full all-out retaliation and the answer is you're wrong of course it would somebody nukes you you're going to nuke their ass back that is that's kind of the standard way that all of these nations with large arsenals feel about each other and even though you could shut down a lot of the grid with a perfectly placed if you do it perfect and if you get a little bit lucky you could do it all right all of our missiles are protected from that shit, and we could still nuke the hell out of the rest of the world. Now, Russia and China actually need us on the top of all this economically. So it just ain't going to happen, period. It ain't going to happen. And could it happen? Yeah. And you could find a lottery ticket on the ground tomorrow that somebody threw away because they thought it was for last week that's actually for next week. You could pick it up. You could take it home, and you could win Powerball for $60 million. You're not going to plan your life around that possibility, though, because it's so ridiculously beyond what's practically probable that you have other things that are more important, like earning your money to buy your bread tomorrow. This is EMP. If you have everything set up to go without power for, let's say, a month, to go without food for a month, to go without medical care for a month and have medical care needs, to deal with your water issues, to deal with backup power issues, to deal with all of the things that come from the disasters that happen all the time. Then, when you feel that there's nothing else left to do, if you want to worry about an EMP, do it. And you will find that that day will never come. There will always be something more practical that you could be worried about and that you could be doing before you worry about the dreaded EMP as for CMEs, coronal mass ejections from the sun, and the damage that they can have to the grid. They do happen. They do create damage to the grid. The grid is in far better shape to deal with them than most people would have you believe. There is, again, there is like this one in a cabillion chance that the right CME happens at the exact right time. They're in the exact flux of the atmosphere. At the exact point that the magnetic field goes through a cycle that is where the earth is pointed exactly the right way, at exactly the right moment, that the collision happens at exactly the right time, that maybe you could have a major grid shutdown with it. Okay? Are you gonna plan your life on this? Or are you gonna deal with the things that are far more probable first? That's what I'm saying. Let's take another call.
3: Hi, Jack. This is Kentucky Sargent. My question is about the developing economic crisis in Europe. Uh, more details. Uh, one of the ways that I track what's going on in the world with with the economy, the world economy, is by checking uh, currencies and value of the U.S. dollar versus different world currencies. Um, one thing that has not made sense to me in the last few years is why the euro remains so highly valued against the dollar despite everything that's been going on in Europe and they're in actually worse shape than us uh, with their economy uh, so if you have any insights into that I would really appreciate it any thoughts on why euro remains so highly valued against the dollar and what's going on there uh, thanks for the show really appreciate all the all the wisdom you share and uh, I've been a listener for about two years now Thanks
2: Well, that's an interesting question, and I could probably do an episode on this type of thing, because money's an illusion, and illusions create a lot of other illusions, right? So, but let me try to explain this in a way that will make it a little easier to understand. When we look at currency strength, we look at it in two ways, and the primary way that people understand currency strength is well, you know a, 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 you know uh, what is the value of an Australian dollar against a US dollar uh, versus a euro versus a Canadian dollar versus uh, uh, you know a, a Brazilian real or whatever and when we look at it that way, we're looking at what's called relative currency strength and there's actually a formula for it. I believe it uses 28 well-known currencies. Uh, either compared against each other, if, if you're one of the 28, or you, you know, your currency's not one of the 28, comp- still compared to this, this, this basket, this currency basket. And that says, well, then if I have a dollar and I want to buy a euro, how many euros do I get? And if let's say, I don't know what the euro dollar value ratio is right now, but let's say if a dollar only bought me half a euro, then we say that, uh, well, the euro is basically twice as strong as the dollar, because if I had a euro, it's the same as having two dollars now, right? And it seems like that makes a lot of sense. But the way we have to really evaluate that is then, well, what is the internal currency strength? In other words, if I were to go to the store with something in the, to the United States, to go to a store and I would buy something for $5, and let's say the euro was – I've never seen it exactly twice as strong, but to make this easy, it was twice as, twice as strong as the dollar. So the $5 only buys me 2.5 euros, $2.50, or two, 2.5 euros, right? And then does that mean that if I had 2.5 euros in Europe and went to the store, would I buy that same item – For two and a half euros. Or would it cost me five euros? And the reality is the European economy is such that any perceived real advantage of having euros over dollars is wiped out on the other side of it internally. So when you have five euros in your pocket in in, in France, it's not like having five dollars. Actually, it is like having five dollars in your pocket in the United States. Right, it's not like having ten, or it's not like having like usually like one and a half, like one and a half euro to one dollar. So it's not like having seven fifty because you have five euros, you can buy what you would here with seven fifty. The only time these currency strengths have a lot of influence on pricing and economics is in international commerce. So they affect import and export economies a great deal but they don't necessarily indicate that a person holding euros can buy anything more if they're earning euros and spending euros than somebody who's earning dollars and spending dollars just because the euro is technically worth more money from a technical analysis. So that's the first thing. That's hard to understand, but it's pretty basic. Another way to understand this is, well, the currency of an economy is like that economy's stock. So if you said something like, company A's stock trades at $50 a share and company B's stock trades at $25 a share and you do one of these old logic tests and you say that means company A is worth more than company B, company B is worth more than company A, or C, there's not enough information present to make a decision, what would you pick? The answer would be C. You do not have enough information to make that decision because if company A is trading at $50 a share, And just to make sense, there are 100 shares of stock. So it has a $5,000 market cap, right? So 50 times 100 um, is $5,000. So it's a $5,000 company. It has a $5,000 market cap. So that would be the company's worth very little. Let's say the company trading at $25 a share had 10,000 shares out and about and being traded so, they would have a $250,000 market cap. So, even though it would look like the, the second company's stock is only worth half of what the first company's stock is, and if you're the one buying it or selling it or holding on to it and saying, I have 10 shares of both, then you would much rather have the small company instead. Because your 10 shares at $50 a share would be worth $500, and your 10 shares of this other company. At $25, a share would be worth $250. But if you actually own the company, which company would you prefer to own? Would you want all the shares of Company B or all the shares of Company A? Assuming one of them's not on the way to bankruptcy and they're both in good shape and that's a true market cap value, I'd rather own a quarter million dollar company than a $5,000 company. So there's a lot of that going on. You say, well, how does that work? Well, how many euros are there? How many people are there? How many people are out working in the economy versus drawing in the economy? Uh, people that are on government assistance are even higher in Europe than they are here. Uh, minimum wages are quote-unquote higher. And this is where the minimum wage fallacy comes into play. And this is a big part of why the euro looks like it's quote-unquote worth more. There's a big move to raise the minimum wage right now in the United States. I'll put it to you this way. Right now, if you make $20 an hour, you are not Bill Gates by a long shot, and you are not living like a Mac Daddy, but you are doing okay at $20 an hour. If we were to say then, therefore, so that everybody can at least live a decent middle class lifestyle, we will make the middle w- w- minimum wage $20 an hour tomorrow morning, and everybody will deal with it. And if... By some chance, it didn't devastate the economy, which it would, except too much too fast. Um, but let's say that you know the companies that couldn't deal with it didn't deal with it, it cut wages, whatever, but eventually it all levels out, and the average person working a 40-hour week makes at least $20 an hour, $800 a week. That would become the new barely-above-board poverty line. And it would happen fast. By simply making... People be paid more to do the same work. You cannot increase the value of the work. The value of the work and the output is actually represented by the money as a symbol of human labor and energy within the economy. And just because you add more money to the energy output doesn't mean you add more value to it. And very quickly inflation would take over. And very quickly making twenty dollars an hour would become about like making eight fifty an hour right now. Very So quick it would be hard to really accept. It's part of why it would destroy the economy, because it would be too fast. It would be 100% inflation overnight. All the minimum wage increases is a forced inflation. And it's a big part of when you look at a country and you say how much money circulates there, what do they call their money, what is their economic output, and what do they have as a base standard of life from an economic standpoint The numbers lie to you. It's like they created stock in Europe. And based on how many shares of stock exist, how much one share is worth. And then they created stock in America, and they issued a lot more shares. Therefore, it looks like the stock is worth less. But in the end, if you're holding either one, you end up doing about the same unless you play the little fluctuations in relative currency strength and go in a one and back out of the other. That's Forex trading. So it's not really that the euro is doing that much better. Again, it's like going back to the stock. Well, this stock selling for more than that stock. How many shares are there? Does the company pay pay dividends? What's their dividend percentage? How are they doing? What's their profit-to-earnings ratio? How many assets do they have? How many liabilities do they have? Has the upside already been priced into the market? You have to think almost like a stock investor when you evaluate currency strength between nations to understand that just because one number is bigger or smaller doesn't mean that one is actually really any better than the other. Let's take another call.
8: Hi, good morning Jack. I'm calling from Northeast Ohio and I'm becoming a beekeeper this spring and I would like to know whether there are plants that I can um, surround my beehive with or on the same plot of ground somewhere somehow to help bring in other insects that will devour the mites and the beetles that I can expect to be a detriment to my beekeeping. Um, Also, Um, The other item I wanted to ask about is your sheet mulching. I'm trying this this year for the first time, and I'd like additional information if you've covered it on a previous show, if you could maybe make me aware of which show to tune back to or to listen to. And if not, if you feel it needs repeating, if you could tell me a little bit about starting a garden from scratch, what I can um, sheet mulch and what depths for each layer and that sort of thing, Um, prior to planting my garden. Thank you.
2: So I thought this was a good one to kick over to Michael Jordan, a.k.a. the Bee Whisperer, uh, as a new member of our council. So, uh, Mike, what say you on this? I I think I know what you're going to say, but I want to hear you say it.
1: Hello, Jack. Hey, this is Michael Jordan calling you. I got your question from the lady in Ohio about starting her new beehive and wanted to know about plants that she could plant around the beehive or in close proximity to help control mites and beetles and bring in maybe other insects to help her control that? Jack, I tell everybody that any time you plant any kind of plant that flowers, it'll help your bees. If you would take and measure five foot away from that beehive, And till an area that is 5 foot by 10 foot and plant plants in a three sisters variety such as clover for ground, Russian sage, different sizes of sunflower, adding sweet pea and marigolds, and if you did that section 5 foot away on the wind side... You just created a food forest for your bees. A windbreak to reduce and shade. Moving that five foot away, you're going to propagate insects that will come to that section. And any time that you produce anything like that, you're going to have one insect that will eat another. You will integrate ladybugs to eat more of the parasitics and if you're lucky in your area, you might get the praying mantis. I'm hoping that if you plant these things on the wind side, five foot away, in that variety, you'll propagate the insects that you're looking for and also help your bees. Hey, if you have any other questions on how to set up that beehive or anything like that, they can email me at Company at gmail.com. and Jack. Hey, if you have anybody that has questions like that, feel free to let me know. I love to talk bees, man, you know that. And if people could just learn not to use smoke and maybe reduce corn sugar for feeding them and integrate some less aggressive tactics, we might have more bees and better beekeepers. Thanks, Jack, for letting me in on on the question. Hopefully that you can get her that information. And I hope to see you at the food forest, man. I'm bringing down some mead. i got to go. i got to make some. I'll talk to you later, brother. A
2: great answer uh, for a first-time response on the expert council. Thank you, Michael. If you want to call in calls from Michael or other members, remember I went through this at the beginning of the show, but a real quick again, you make a phone call to 866 think say, I've called this question in for council member fill-in-the-blank, and I uh, want to know, da-da-da-da-da, and then you email me and let me know you did that, and I am uh, more likely to dig it out. Let's go ahead and take another call.
3: Hi, Jack. It's Blaine from BC. I was just wondering, how do you calculate how much snow will turn into water? We've been snowing here nonstop for the past three days, and I was just wondering how much that will calculate into in water soakage for my gardens. Thanks a lot. Bye now.
2: Another one of these uh, permaculture questions, really, is is what this question is. And almost all of them are, it it depends. But let me give you the easy answer first. Uh, The easy answer is about 10%. So if you get 10 inches of snow, it's like an inch of rain. You get 20 inches of snow for a year, it's like you got another 2 inches of rain. You get 30, it's like 3. Let's get to the first, it depends. Well, it depends on what kind of snow you got. And generally there's three kinds of snow. There's average snow, whatever the hell that is, and it's considered 10% rain. There's wet snow, whatever the hell that is, and it's 1.3%. So if you had 10 inches of wet snow, it's like getting, um, it's like 1.3 inches. It's not 1.3%, right? So it's, uh, 1.3 inches per 10. So it's like 13%. And, then you have what you call powder snow, whatever the hell that is, right? And that's we're going to be about 7%. So uh, if you get 10 inches, you're going to get 7 tenths of one inch, or a little less than three quarters of an inch. So, you know, that, that pretty much tells you if you get 20 inches of powder snow, it's like getting 1.4 inches of rain. Or if you got you know 20 inches of average snow it's like getting two inches of rain and if you got one you know 20 inches of wet snow it's like 2.6 now i know what wet average and powder is but yet i say whatever the hell that means well it also comes down to if you're really trying to be technically accurate how wet really wet or a little bit more wet than average how powdery Really super light, fluffy powder that makes skiers happy on top of the ice bed, or a little bit more powdery than normal. But in the end, if you average it out across a year and you did a ten percent, you got thirty inches and say that's like three inches of rain in my climate, you're gonna be pretty accurate. So it doesn't really matter. Now the next it depends. How fast does it melt? And how steep is your environment? And how deep are your soils? Because we can calculate absolutely that, yes, this snowfall is somewhere in the neighborhood of like getting two inches of rain. But if we get two inches of rain in a day, we get a lot of runoff in any environment. But if we get a gentle melting over a winter of a couple inches of snow in a place that's relatively flat... With deep soils that can hold a lot of moisture, we get a lot more infiltration of water into the ground than we could get from two inches of rain probably in any circumstance, even if we got it over multiple periods of time. It's like having a giant soaker hose that covers every square inch of the land, slowly seeping water out and it being mulched on top of it because the snow is melting from underneath, and the top snow is preventing the, 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 the bottom melt from evaporating. Plus, it's cold out, so there's less evaporation. So, to me, if we have the snow equivalent of an inch of rain, and it's not in a steep environment with a fast melt where we get a lot of runoff from the snow, like the mountains do, but, you know, flat good environment with a slow melt it's is valuable in water into the soil as at least two to two and a half inches of rain if not more because in permaculture we don't worry so much about how much water do we get to start with that's only a means to an end how much water do we keep in snow melt we get to keep a lot more in the soil than we do from rain snow falls softly on the ground and slowly melts into the ground. Rain hammers the ground, and a lot of it runs off. We also get rain, not always, but many times. Our rain comes at times of the year where it's warm out, and our evaporation rates are higher. So I would say that even with the numbers I gave you in the beginning, slow melt, light slopes, good ground for infiltration, it's worth at least twice what the numbers would indicate. In the end, though, what really matters is, is how effectively are you using whatever you have? How are you harvesting, maintaining, and controlling the moisture that's available to you? Good question, though. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack.
3: This is Tom from Kentucky. I'm calling with an expert counsel question for Chef Keep Snow. Uh, my counsel question is uh, what to do with an overabundance of okra next year. Uh, any ideas on how to uh, be creative with this uh, other than pickling and fried uh what are some creative ways that he might have to cook it up and keep it interesting. Appreciate the show and uh appreciate any help you can give me. Thanks, Jack.
2: <laughs> well let's hear from the man himself, Chef Keith Snow. What say you on Okra, Chef Keith? And uh I might have a few words on this one myself because I kinda like Okra.
9: Hey Tom in Kentucky, it's Chef Keith Snow from the Expert Panel. And I wanted to address your question about okra. Now, um, I understand you've got a pretty big crop of okra coming, um, and you want to have a few ideas to cook with it. Now, uh, okra it would definitely uh, fit into the category of a love-it-or-hate-it type food. Now, coming from um, North Carolina, most recently, now I live in Montana, so you don't really see any okra out here, um, but down in... um in the south okra's everywhere and of course uh ninety nine percent of the time you're gonna find it um at least in the Carolinas, Georgia, places like that, you'll find it fried. And uh you know, I guess it's somewhat edible like that. I don't really go for it, but that's um what you see a lot is fried okra. Um but okra, you know, has its roots in, in uh gullah and sort of French type cookery and there's a lot of ways to cook with okra that actually make it um, more palatable, let's put it that way. And when I say it's a love-it-or-hate-it food, I mean, some people, um, you know, for for cilantro, for example, they just can't stand it. Other people love it. I happen to love it. But um, a couple of ideas with cooking with your okra. Um, one way I love to do it is to make sort of an okra stew. And when I call it a stew, this isn't where it's going to cook for hours It's just sort of stewed, if you will, but you get a collection of onions, garlic, maybe some green onions and uh, start to saute those in olive oil. And you don't want to brown them, but you want to sweat them out pretty good. And then you'll put in your diced up, uh, clean okra. Um, also some crumbled bacon would go fabulous in there and, um, then diced tomatoes and try to use very ripe diced tomatoes, not those miserable pink-looking things you get this time of year at the store. So if you're going to do it this type, of, this time of year, you would use some canned um, tomatoes, like diced up canned tomatoes. But anyway, um, you season that up with salt and pepper. You could spice it a bit if you like. And uh, that's a simple way to make stewed okra. People would serve something like that either as a side dish alongside uh, grilled meat or even uh, on top of rice and kind of make a meal out of it. But that's certainly something. And uh, uh people do quite a bit of that in the South as well. Also, um, there's... Relishes, like you can make a relish. And and when I say relish, again, I'm not uh, necessarily referring to the the green stuff you put on hot dog, more of a a consistency of a lot of different vegetables. And things like corn, onion, tomato, bell peppers, okra, all those things cooked together as a relish. And a relish is simple. Um, I would, again, start with a little olive oil, onions, and garlic and then start to slowly add in the vegetables, season it up really well with salt and pepper. And you've got sort of a vegetable medley, and you can definitely use up a lot of okra that way. Um, Of course, if you get down into Louisiana and places like that, New Orleans and the Bayou, they cook a lot of um, gumbos and dishes like that that are very classic to have okra in them. So... um, I would definitely give some of these recipes a try. It's not the most versatile ingredient, uh, okra, but I know that when it does take off, I've been to farms in western North Carolina, CSA in fact, that, uh, uh I've never seen okra so big. I mean, it, it had to have been, I would say nine, ten feet tall. Just, they had a massive long row of it and um, it can be a pretty uh, prolific crop but um i would definitely avoid personally the uh, the frying of it you know i guess it's i guess it's somewhat edible if if uh, somebody else makes it but you know if you if you've got a lot of that vegetable i would try some of these other methods and i hope that helps out um do check out my podcast and i want to thank you for calling in the question
2: Good stuff. And the first thing I'll add is mostly what you heard Chef Keith saying is if you're going to use okra to cook with, don't cook okra. Cook with okra. What I mean by that is if you make a great big pot of okra, it's not very good. And I think a lot of times that's part of the problem that people are trying to figure out. How do I make okra taste good by itself? You can do it. I'm going to actually tell you how. Um, but it's not the easiest thing. Okra has that mucus, you know, mucus type Thing to it, but it also has a unique flavor and it binds with other things and it thickens stews and gravies. That's one of the great things. You can't really make real gumbo without okra. You can't do it. It's not just the filet, which is the ground sassafras that, that thickens uh, a good gumbo. It's the the, the cooking out that that, that slot, that okra slime into the gumbo that binds it up. And when you eat okra in a gumbo, it doesn't taste slimy anymore because it's been incorporated into other things. So all the things Chef Keith was talking about kind of do that. Here's the way to do it and use that binding to your advantage. How about making hush puppies with okra? Okay. Hush puppies with okra that sounds crazy. Cube your okra up, chopped up in little cubes like you're making a jalapeno hush puppy. Then, get some shrimp. Cut the shrimp into little bite-sized pieces. And mix about a 50-50 ratio of okra to shrimp together. Mix up some hush puppy batter. I know this isn't paleo, but my God, you must do this at least once or twice a year when the okra's is high. Because it's amazing. And then drop your little gobules of hush puppy, which is basically cornbread mixed with okra and shrimp into 350 degree oil and cook them till they are golden brown. And you will want to, and there's the old saying, go smack your mama, it is so good. So that's one way. And now you're binding the slime of the okra into the starch of the corn. And you're bringing in the flavor of the shrimp, which harkens back to its traditional use in a gumbo. So that's, that's another thing that you can do. You'd actually be surprised, though, if you make okra and you do the following. Use small, tender okras for this. Don't let them get big at all. Pick them a little smaller than you normally would. Okay? Cut your little end piece off, your little stem piece, because it's hard even when it's a small okra. Wash your okra. Get it really nice and dry. Get a pan. Put some peanut oil or another good high-temperature cooking oil in the pan. Chop up some garlic, throw the garlic in, some chilies, chili pepper, and garlic in there, and cook that until the garlic starts to brown. As the garlic starts to brown, add your okra whole. Cook it till it, it's a little bit golden fried, but not battered. Take it out and drain it and you'll be surprised at how good it is. Small okras like that, you can also just brush them with some oil, especially garlic-infused or chili garlic-infused oil, and grill them on a high-temperature grill till they brown on the outside. And then don't sit down to a plate of okra, put the okra on the side, and eat it with other things, incorporate it in a meal, and then it becomes much more palatable. So those are some just some additional things that uh, that I think you can do with okra. And fried okra, I know you didn't really want this, but fried okra can be pretty good. Especially if you get creative. If you take half of like a, a, batter mix that you would fry it in, uh, and half of that batter mix you then replace with something like crushed pecans. All I'm gonna say is try it. All I'm gonna say is try it. <laughs> with that, let's go ahead. I got another one for Chef Keats. So I'm gonna just play the question, give Chef Keats, uh, answer to it, and then I got two more I'll take and we are out for the day.
6: Hey, Jack. This is Scrappy Cook on Forums. Calling in with a question for Chef Keith Snow. Um, I wanted to know if uh, he had any tips on how to cook with MREs. And I don't mean how to cook an MRE, as in using a um, the, the adding water to the chemical packet, and having that heat up the MRE like it's intended. Um, I mean, does he have any ideas as in, in adding ingredients into this? Basically, toothpaste goop that's supposed to be uh, beef stroganoff, <laughs> and then mixing it around with some things you add from home, and basically you eat a meal that's uh, you know tastes great, or maybe even up to gourmet level um, from something that's a meal ready to eat sitting in the garage. Um, I've seen this done before a couple times from one of the ladies. I think she was on the first season of Doomsday Preppers. And um, she kind of made her whole niche in the prepping community by doing these, this kind of cooking. But I thought it'd be cool to ask Chef Keith Snow if he knew anything about that sure. or had any tips, and um, maybe could uh, apply his expertise in that direction. Thanks for everything you do, Jack.
9: Okay, this is uh, the MRE guy. I'll give it my my best shot here, Jack. In three, two one hey this is chef keith snow from harvest eating and the expert panel and i wanted to address scrappy cook's question about um making mres a little more palatable now this is um probably you know the challenge of a lifetime so to speak i mean mres and also foods like dehydrated type foods and normally it's the ones and i've had uh long term storable food where you Open it up and you pour the packet and it has to go into a pot with a certain amount of water and then it needs to be cooked over the heat for 15 or 20 minutes. And, uh, those tend to be a little better in my opinion than, uh, something like an MRE or even, you know, like a backpacking meal where you, um, open the pouch, pour in the hot water, you know, crumble the top down, wait eight or 10 minutes or five minutes, whatever the instructions say. And then you 've got this uh you know this dish, and of course you 'd stir it up first, but what you 'll see in common with just about all of those what 's missing in just about all of those is the is is technique, and when you cook foods, um, technique is super important, and people sometimes don't put enough emphasis on that. And I'll give you an example. Um, we make a line of pasta sauces called Thoughtful Harvest. And one of the things that we do with the sauces is we first saute onions and garlic and herbs in olive oil. And what this does is create an infusion of flavor. So we've got a highly flavored oil, and then we proceed with the recipe recipe with the other ingredients that we use to make the sauces. Now that stands in contrast to, um, the bigger companies that have high speed equipment. They don't want to use kettles. You know, they don't want to have a kettle of olive oil and then they don't want people stirring and sauteing. You know, that's, that's handcrafted. They, They don't want anything like that. So what they do is they use a bulk mixing tank. So it's a giant, Silver tank, it could be a thousand, two thousand, even up to five thousand gallons. They put in their you know tomatoes, um, whatever ingredients they're using onions, garlic, everything goes into this what, what's called a bulk tank, and it mixes things up uniformly, and that the point of it is to make a uniform mix of all the ingredients. So you've got tomatoes, oil, onions, everything in one tank. And the point is that it's at room temperature. So there's no cooking happening. And then they pump it through what's called a heat exchanger. And those of you that brew beer, you may have seen what's called a wart chiller. And a wart chiller is generally, uh, copper tubing. And it just, it's like a giant snake of copper tubing and you run cold water through it and you put the wart chiller into your hot wart and, um, water, like that will remove a lot of heat. And when you've got water circulating through pipes like that, it will remove a lot of heat from your beer. Conversely, if you pump um, that tomato mixture I just described through a heat exchanger, you've got the same type of tubes that almost look like a car's radiator, just lots of little tubes going all over the place, and then they're inside of a usually a steam container, so high-pressure steam heats up, in this case, tomato sauce. So you've got it pumped at room temperature or ambient temperature through the heat exchanger, and it will bring it up to about 190 degrees, which pasteurizes the product. And then um, it goes on to the bottling line, and then that's what you get. Um, you know, they'll cool it off and then... Uh, after it's it's packed in, in glass with caps, they'll cool it off, and that's their, their pasta sauce. Now, what's missing there, and this is the whole point of what I'm trying to say, is what's missing there is the culinary technique, is the infusion. How do onions and garlic and olive oil and herbs, how do those things marry together and create something better when they're not applied with direct heat? If you pour, it's like making a soup. If you throw all the vegetables, all the tomatoes, beans, whatever you're making a soup in, fill it up with water cold and then bring it up to a boil, you're never going to get a soup that has the character of a soup that started out where the vegetables are being sautéed and cooked. And so there's layers of flavor being crafted. And this is what's missing in an MRE or a food like a dehydrated backpacker meal. And so first of all, you've got something that's kind of uniformly um, not bland. I mean, there is taste, but there's no, um, it, it's just one kind of dull, flat flavor. The other huge component of these things is texture. And generally you're talking about a very, um, stewy, mushy type, um, you know, there's a lot of other ways I could describe it, but I won't, but you have something that's devoid of texture. Now in cooking, texture is, is almost as As important as taste. It is critical. And I like to give the example of, um, you know, let's just say we're going to make a very basic salad. If you take romaine lettuce and, um, cut it into big chunks and tomatoes into big chunks and cucumbers into big chunks, you throw some dressing on it and then you eat it, you know, you're breaking down a lot of vegetable matter in your mouth, um, having to to chew on big pieces of lettuce. There's texture there, but it may not be pleasing texture. Now take the same salad and take your chef's knife and um, finely shred the cabbage, you know, roll or the uh, the lettuce rather, roll it up on your board and slice it really finely into what I call like a chop salad. And then have little slices of tomatoes and very fine matchsticks of cucumber. And then you try that salad that way. It's the same exact ingredients, folks, but the texture is completely different and a lot more pleasing. Now, what you can do to these MREs and things is, is, is try to add texture. Now I'll give you another example. Um, you mentioned beef stroganoff. Now, um, beef stroganoff is, a great dish. My uh, mother-in-law, who's German, makes beef stroganoff. But when you take it out of one of these packages, again, it's going to be completely devoid of any texture. Now, certainly putting it over some egg noodles that you cook at home, that's going to add something to it. But um, it's going to be kind of flat. What about sauteing some mushrooms on the stove and uh, maybe even some onions and then mixing that into your base and putting it over um your egg noodles that would add some texture um also think of something like uh ramen noodles now ramen noodles have kind of a stringy texture and a soupy texture and we have a lot of ramen noodles here at the house and what i do on, from time to time is practice you know uh when it all comes down day and tell the kids all right we have no power nothing we've got a, we've got ramen noodles let's let's see how we can make them better and what i'll do is on once the ramen noodles are in the bowl you know the soup the soupy you know mixtures in there the miserable flavor packet is in there and you know i have to admit it does taste a little bit good if you forget about the ingredients it tastes a little bit okay but what do you do to make it to give it some texture, what we'll do is we'll, sh- we'll shred up cabbage. So you put shredded cabbage on there. You put fresh cilantro on there, a pile of either bean sprouts that we always have in the kitchen like mung beans or even alfalfa sprouts on top, um, a little chili sauce, maybe some um, ground-up chili paste, a little sprinkle of, of um, soy sauce, and all of a sudden you have something – that has additional texture, additional flavor, and isn't so bad. Now, there's a zillion MREs out there. What about taking uh, MREs and putting things, putting like a little Parmesan cheese on it? Or again, maybe you saute up some onions and bell peppers, and you throw it on one of these you know, Santa Fe chicken type things, crumble up some tortilla strips, or even fry some tortilla strips, put those on top. Maybe you add a little shredded cheese to one of those. Um, those are some ideas. Uh, also, citrus juices. If you've got something that might take lime juice, for instance, a little bit of lime juice on top can make that kind of flat, overly cooked type MRE flavor come alive a bit. Also, a pat of butter, something simple like a pat of butter and a little bit of our northern Italian seasoning or whatever type uh, seasoning or spice you may have. Take that Dip, put it in a dish, you know a pat of butter on there, some um, dried herbs on there, maybe some fresh herbs if you have those, some crumbled up uh, you know chips there's a lot of things, and of course it 's got to be. You don't want to put crumbled up chips on beef stroganoff, but on something like a, um, you know, Santa Fe chicken that may have a cumin and that type flavor in there, uh, that would work. Also, a spoonful of fresh salsa on top of a cooked MRE can make it a lot better by adding texture and additional flavor and brightness is something that these things are completely devoid in. So things like uh, juices, lime juice, squeeze of uh, lemon juice, even a, a touch of... Uh, red wine vinegar, maybe a drizzle of olive oil on some of these um and that's how you you take something that's wasn't cooked with culinary technique is kind of flat and mushy uh add in texture and and lately I've been doing this a lot with sprouts like i'll take. Uh, a dish, and I'll just pile a bunch of sprouts, like even eggs in the morning, like a cheese omelet. I'll put a avocado on there, a big pile of sprouts, diced tomatoes, drizzle the whole thing with olive oil, a little salt and pepper right on top, and then I'll just kind of eat that, and that makes, you know, eggs which don't have a lot of texture or an omelet which doesn't have a lot of texture, it adds a lot to it. So Scrappy Cook, that's about all I can offer. Um, again, making an MRE taste Gourmet is uh, is definitely a challenge, but I was happy to try and take it on. Hopefully, uh, the theory and ideas that I put forth here help. And uh, I want to thank you guys for calling in the questions. And that's it. Have a great day.
2: Great tips, uh, way beyond what I could tell you, but I do have a couple things to, to add even to this one. As someone that lived on these dreadful things for six months. I don't know if the thing still exists, but back when I was in, there were only 12 MREs. They all had a number on them, and you learned the numbers really quick because if you saw that the box of MREs when you were in line to get yours was going to leave you with one of certain numbers you hated, you got out of line and got back to the back of the line to avoid it. You just started learning to count really quick and recognize those numbers from a distance. One was the number four. Some people love this thing. If I had somebody with me that I knew would want to trade for it, I'd go ahead and get it and, and risk getting whatever they had. If I thought I was going to start with number four, I would bail. Until the empanada. I'll tell you about the empanada in a second. So number four was called a ham slice. It was not a ham slice. It was it was a spam slice. And it was what spam would be on a bad day for Hormel, like when they made the worst spam. It was terrible. It was salty. It was that spammy jelly like It really had no redeeming qualities at all. And one dude said, "Hey, man, you really need to stop like being afraid of the ham slice, because you can take that to this chick that lives by you know by the the camp here, who does this for people every day. You give her your MRE, and she gets to keep all the little packets and stuff like that, and she takes your ham slice." Um, So she gets the cocoa and all that stuff, and in return, she'll take your ham slice for another buck, and she'll make it into empanadas and bring you the empanadas back. And I'm like, I can't see this thing ever tasting good. Um, They were freaking awesome, because she applied the seasonings and techniques and cooked out the jelly crap that was in there. And then season that meat. And thinking of a ham empanada, I've never heard of it. It doesn't sound good. But with all of the seasonings that she was using, whatever they use locally, it was pretty dadgone good with this little flaky pastry around it and all. And it was pretty awesome. So just thinking of how can I take the component of the MRE and use it an ingredient something else is, you know, kind of a lot of what Keith was talking about, but that's another way of looking at it. So that's all I've got to add to that one. Um, and let me say that you should not end up in a position where it's that big a deal because you should not rely just on MREs. These are quick, uh, short-term bridge gaps in your, your food planning. If you store MREs to the point that you're going to be living on them for months, uh, there are far less expensive and better ways to take care of those needs for long-term nutrition planning. Let's take another call.
0: Hey Jack, this is Bob from Eastern PA. I have an for panel question for Frank Sharp Jr. Um, this could also go to Joe Nobody, but it's kind of a more American perspective, so I think Frank is the, the better choice. Um, my question today is about everyday carry knives with clips and whether clips are a good idea. I own knives with pocket clips, and I see a lot of folks out and about carrying knives with pocket clips, clip their front pockets, for example, in jeans. Well, I work in an office, so for EDC I don't choose to carry a clip knife because I don't want to advertise it. Um, but that comes to my question. Here's my thought. If I'm in my yard or my basement or my garage, having a knife clipped makes it a convenient tool. If I'm out in the world, however, having a knife clipped my pocket makes it, makes it a convenient tool or a convenient weapon. However, I've stood behind or near many guys, like in the checkout line at a store, like a Walmart, where I could easily reach forward and pull the knife out of another person's pocket. And I'm assuming that if I wore a clip knife, people could do that behind me. Understanding that if I carry a clip knife, there's no reason to think somebody couldn't take it from me. Um, To me, I think that means the clip is more of a liability than an asset in that situation. Jack, you mentioned a few times the uh, scenario of the screwdriver and the kidney. Um, Replace that with, uh, with getting stabbed through a knife, and it's scary and dangerous and avoidable. Please give some guidance on clip knives, and related to that, best way to carry a knife without using the clip. Related to this, Jack, um, you mentioned a couple times the Gerber EAB, um, which does have a clip. Um, I bought one of those, and it's the best $12 I ever spent. Since then, I've bought a number for gifts, and I appreciate the recommendation. Thank you, and have a good day.
2: Well, um actually, I'm going to, uh, to take this one myself because Joe Nobody is not on the council anymore because I stopped getting answers from him. And, uh, Frank Sharp Jr., for one reason or another, I guess he's busy or something, has not been sending me answers in a timely fashion lately. And I, I think I can actually do a, a good one, a good answer for you on this question. Well, there's a lot of ways to approach this, and you just kind of hit on one at the end. So, let's say I was carrying the Gerber EAB, the extended blade. This is a little standard razor blade. In a little bitty folding knife, it looks like a money clip, that if somebody did pull that out and tried to open it up and use it on you, they'd probably, in in, in the haste of trying to do something like that, cut themselves with it while you beat them about the head and shoulders uh, and kick their ribs in on the ground as they wondered why this little thing didn't open. So one way that if you wanted the convenience of always being able to reach for a knife, but you didn't want the potential for somebody to just pull your knife out and stab you with it, um, then, well... You could carry a knife that is easily accessible with a clip, but not one of these instant open knives or something like that, or something with a double lock, where if somebody pulls the knife out, if they don't know how the knife functions, they can't just thumb it open. So either because the knife is impractical as a weapon, which the EAB is, unless it was used as an ambush weapon because, sure, you could slit somebody's throat or something with it, but it's not really a defensive weapon or a good offensive weapon. It would only, again, be some kind of like an ambush thing, uh, like a box cutter, basically. Um, In fact, a box cutter with a bigger handle would be a much better weapon than an EAB. So from a standpoint of just being difficult to open or from a standpoint of... Being a a, a tool that a person just doesn't know how to open, and it's easy for you but not for them, would be better, or a standpoint of it's simply impractical. And yet you still have it to do things like cut tape off a box or something like that. Um, I'm not sure I agree with your assessment on it being really dangerous and, and what have you, and here's why. If a person wants to do you harm... Um, they probably have the means to do so and are not worried about taking a knife out of your pocket and stabbing you with it. Um, Taking a knife out of somebody's pocket and stabbing them with it seems like a really easy thing to do, but most of the people that are willing to do that are willing to simply carry their own thing to stab you with or to hit you in the face with. And if we start worrying about, well, everything that's around me that could be used as a weapon is dangerous and i got to get rid of it because it's dangerous, uh, you better not go to that store. You're in the store. You're standing in line. The guy in front of you has a pocket knife. I could pull his knife out and stab him with it. Well, if I actually wanted to stab somebody in a grocery store, I could go down the uh, the, uh, the implements aisle and get a great big freaking butcher knife, pull it out of the clamshell, and stab you a hell of a lot deeper than I could with the average pocket knife. So it's kind of like, is it a risk? Maybe. How big a risk is it? It depends. Where are you going? Where do you conduct business at? If you're down in the inner city, uh, in a place that's like considered a dangerous place for you to be in the first place, anything of any value that you have on, I would conceal. And I whether it's a knife or a pocket full of money, I would not want it seen because it might attract attention that you already don't want. Day to day life, it's kind of like stranger danger. Right, So we tell our kids, oh, don't talk to strangers. strangers. And parents are probably more afraid of stranger danger than just about anything else in the world. But your kid is more likely to be eaten by a shark than abducted by a stranger. It's not impossible, but the probability, again, is very, very low. Does that mean you do stupid things like let your kids run around in a music park, Uh, amusement park with no supervision when they're really little and before they know how to handle themselves. Of course not. Of course not. But it also means that you shouldn't run around like, oh my god, a stranger talked to my kid. Most people, most people, because this is, this paranoia is so deep now, fear talking to children because it will be perceived that they are a threat. And you wonder, how are we going to repair our freaking society when an adult sees a kid that can use some help and actually is apprehensive about giving that kid some help? I remember one time I was in a store, uh, like like a department store or something like that, where the clothes were, I think I remember. And this little kid's running in between the clothes and stuff like that. He was probably about two or three years old. And apparently, I must have been wearing clothing that were similar to his father or something like that. And he came out of the thing, and he grabbed me by the pant leg, and he was holding on to me like he would hold on to his dad. Because he, in his, you know, like underneath the things and all, saw my pants and figured I was his dad. Well, he looked up at me and realized I wasn't. He got a really scared look on his face. Oh, oh I messed up. And fortunately, his parents were right there. And I said, I think he's confused. And it was all good and well. But you know what I was thinking immediately? I was thinking, uh-oh. They're going to think I'm trying to steal her kid or something like that, right? Um, So I know that seems like we're well off the question, but we're really not. It's the same mentality. Like, oh, if I carry a knife around, somebody could pull it out of my pocket and stab stab me with it. Okay, well, then how do you feel about open carry? Think about that, of a gun. It's in a holster, right? Now, I think if you're carrying, you should have a retention holster, especially if you're open carrying, but it's still there. A person that knows how a retention holster works could still remove it from your holster. So should we not have open carry because somebody could take the gun away from you? What about when you're hunting? You're out in the woods hunting. You're standing talking to a guy you just met. Could he take your gun away from you and shoot you with it? Could he shoot you with his gun? I mean, how far do we wrap ourselves in bubble wrap and safety foam and airbags... Versus just live based on what's practical. So, I would not hesitate to carry a clip knife. I really wouldn't. I find the convenience to outweigh the potential for it to be used against me. If I was worried about it, I would carry a standard pocket knife deep in my pocket. Or I would carry... Well, that's probably what I would carry. Because even a belt knife with a, with, a, with, a, uh, with a retention strap, I could probably actually get that away from you quicker than I can a clip knife. There's a gamble to the guy that's going to pull... I'll just pull his clip knife out. You don't know how it's going to come out. It's easy to think it. It's not as easy to do it. Not to mention, if you try to grab my knife out of my pocket, then I'm full within my rights to defend myself as though you've tried to lethally attack me. At least I know your intentions at this point. So... But then again, there is that risk, right? So if you were... In an elevated security situation, I would probably refrain from it. Day-to-day use, I think it probably outweighs itself. And then common sense, right? What kind of knife are you carrying? How obvious is it that you're carrying it? For instance, I carry my neck knife all the time. When I'm out in my yard and in my garden and in, in places like that or walking around the house, I usually carry it outside my shirt. That way it's convenient, right? Now, when I go out in public, most of the time... I put it inside my shirt, not because I'm afraid somebody will see a knife and go, oh, my God, he has a knife, but because, yes, it could be grabbed. And even from a standpoint of the person that was trying to harm me wasn't actually going to use my knife, it's a a rope around my neck you could use to pull my head down with. I don't like that, right? So if I'm working around equipment or machinery or something like that, I'm also going to either take it off or wear it inside my shirt because it poses more of a risk of getting wrapped up around a lathe and jerking my face into a lathe than it really does of somebody trying to take it away from me and stab me with it. Bluntly, if you're in a place where someone is willing to, for no reason whatsoever other than they want to harm you or steal from you, use your knife to stab you with it, they probably have already got it covered as to using something that they have for themselves. And sometimes we can watch a few too many movies uh, of a few too many like you know, black ops guys or something that have all these crazy ways to kill people and we start to apply too much of that to our day-to-day lives and I think we're a little bit there if we start to worry about that too much in a normal situation but again, when I go down into South Dallas in a place where I'm probably already physically at risk just because clearly I don't fit in there and there's a large crime element and additionally display that I have a knife on me oh no Oh, no, that's different, right? But am I going to really worry about the fact that I have my Columbia River knife in my pocket when I go out and about down to tractor supply to pick up a couple bags of feed? Pretty much no, not at all. Let's take another call.
10: Hello, Jack. This is Darlene from Ohio again. I have a couple of very different questions. Uh, First question is with regard to uh, a mention that you made on your podcast uh, not too far back, maybe a month or two ago, with regard to um, starting roots with willow buds. And I needed to understand that process. Um, I'm interested in a natural, basically like rooting uh, hormone stimulant. Uh, to uh, maybe do roses, shrubs, trees, whatever you can do that with. And if you could expand on the capabilities. And with spring on the uh, verge here in Ohio, I was uh, wanting to maybe, you know, collect the buds. Uh, is it only buds that are uh, uh, appear in the springtime, the early buds? Is it budding throughout the year, uh, those were some of the uh, intrigue that I had about it. Uh, secondly, a very different question, uh, the uh, interest that we have obtained from your podcast was in the uh, program that you had with Rick Warden on rabbitry. Uh, we started our rabbits here and are very successful, but now we have the hides, um, the pelts, that we really don't know that tanning process. Uh, the tools to use to scrape and things like that. You recommended a knife before uh, that was very helpful, and we bought it and used it, and it worked great. So if you could also maybe have a program again with Rick, that would be great. But also uh, if you could go into the arena of, of uh, tanning and um, how to preserve those pelts and turn them into a useful uh, product. Thank you so much, Jack. We love your programs and look forward to every new one that you put out. Thank you. Bye.
2: Well, uh, on the rabbit thing, I don't know when I would get him back on the air, and I probably wouldn't bring someone on there just to talk about tanning rabbit hides. I might find somebody to talk about tanning in general, so what I've done for you right now actually is I've gone out and looked around and tried to find something, uh, of a resource for you on tanning that would be concise and usable and easily understandable and tell you everything you need to know and not a million things you don't need to know. And I found a 4-H P- uh, PDF uh, by a 4-H, uh, youth development, uh, for Michigan State University and it is pretty dad-gone simple and pretty dad-gone good, and tanning is complex to explain, so I'm not even going to try on the air, but I am going to link to this PDF for you in the show notes so that you or anybody else that would like to know more about tanning rabbit hides in particular uh, can get it and uh, go do it. I would tell you that if you can get... Through the kindness of strangers, or laying on the side of a road, or from uh, the uh, effective use of a firearm, uh, legally, of course, something like a raccoon to do is one of your first hides, you may find it a little easier to work with because it 's a very tough hide and more forgiving of. Uh, mistakes when it comes to scraping and fleshing a hide than something a little bit more delicate like a rabbit, but there's no reason you can't start with with rabbit. Um, and if you can do a rabbit, you can kind of do anything, honestly, because that is a, is somewhat of a delicate hide uh, compared to a lot of other hides. So I'm just going to give you that PDF and tell you for now that that would be a good place to start, and there's plenty of YouTube videos on tanning rabbits and things like that as well. Uh, so give it a shot, and I think it's one of those things you will learn more by doing than by hearing someone talk about it. Uh, on the willow, though, I can, yes, I can help you with that a great deal. And I think this is a very good skill for people to know. And it is an, it is a skill that I can explain to you uh, on the air. And as soon as I explain it, you will be able to do it. And it will work, and it will do really good things for you. Let's talk about what we're actually doing. We're trying to stimulate a plant to either increase its root structure or to produce a root structure in the form of a cutting. And there's a lot of different ways to do this. And there are some pretty good root hormone stimulators. A lot of times they contain phosphorus and they also claim uh, have plant hormones that are called oxins. But some of them can be quite toxic. Um, where if you had some mixed up, they could actually be toxic if like one of your animals got into it and, and, and drank it. So if you had like a, a jar of it mixed up and it fell over to a dog drank it, it could be toxic to the dog. So that's you know, and some of them yes and some of them no and some of them somewhat. So whenever you're using a chemical, you always have potential for additional toxicity. I'm not saying it would be bad for you. The small amount that's used to do what needs to be done from a chemical root hormone stimulator, rooting stimulator, is so small that by the time the plant grows and produces anything, it doesn't matter anymore. It's over, it's done. It's like it would be like, okay, I don't want antibiotics in my in my my food. Right, so I don't want a, a, a you know, mass-produced food where they give antibiotics as a preemptive measure. That's really not what I'm looking for in food. So I, I would prefer that you know I'm not eating beef from cattle that are injected with antibiotics on a, on a maintenance frequency. But if a cow was sick and the rancher said the way to save this cow is with antibiotics, and they gave the cow an antibiotic, and the cow got better. It was a little cow. He's a calf. And he got better, and then like 12 months later, he was ready to graduate from Bovine University and become Delicious Steaks. I would not hesitate or even concern myself about the fact that that cow ever had an antibiotic because that's over and done with. That's how to think of these chemical rooting stimulators. But, first of all, you have to buy them from someone, and second, there is this potential for toxicity. Willow has a lot of auxins in it. Um, it is why willow, pretty much you can cut a willow branch and stick it in the ground and it just will almost immediately root for you. So it just has this behavior of being able to rapidly set roots. And one of the reasons is because it's high in these auxins. Now, there's a lot of ways to do this. What some people do is because buds are generally higher in them, they'll just get a bunch of willow buds and they'll just macerate them up like in a mortar and pestle, add a little bit of water and use it almost like it's a little bit of a paste. It works fine. But, you know, it has to be in bud season and all. And what you can really do is you just cut a bunch of, of willow branches, the thin little ones like tips, right? So you got leaves, and you got stems, and you got buds. That's perfect. Uh, and really thin stuff. Stuff you can cut with a pair of, you know, scissors. That would be great. You get a bunch of that. You cut it up in pieces. Not little tiny chopped up like you're making, um, souffle or something like that. Like just coarse pieces. Couple inches long. Put them into a jar. Heat up some water to boiling. And dump the boiling water over them. And let them steep in there. How much? I don't know. A big handful into a jar. How big of a jar? I don't know, a ball jar like you you put pickles in, right? And then that water is what you use. So you can take that water and you can put a cutting straight into that water. Or you can dilute it by about half. Or you can take a root, a cutting you're going to root, by putting straight into something like soil. So... For instance, tomatoes, if you cut a good liter off a tomato and stick it into good moist soil in a pot or in the ground, it'll root and it'll start growing all by itself. But if you dip it in this for a couple of minutes or seconds or whatever at all first and get some of the auxins in contact with the plant tissues, it will root healthier and faster. Again, though, there's nothing wrong with using these commercial products for root stimulation. It's one of those things that, yes, it's a chemical. Yes, it's not organic. But no, it's not a long-term thing. It is just to get this behavior. Nick Ferguson, who came to our last workshop, brought some basil cuttings he had done. And I don't remember the name of the product that he was using. But he just put some... He went to the grocery store. Grocery store, you get live basil in a package... He went there to get some cuttings to experiment with this. He cut some basil and he put them into some water. He cut some other basil and he dipped it into this root hormone for a couple seconds and then put it into also water, not water treated with the hormone. It only got a quick bath. The roots on the cuttings that had been stimulated were at least four times as big and healthy. And big healthy roots make big healthy plants. So we can do it with willow, and we can do it with a commercial product. The thing about willow is if I have one willow tree, I have practically an endless supply of rooting stimulator. And the thing is, it's not expensive stuff anyway. But there's a lot we can do with rooting stimulator. Tell you another thing you can do with rooting stimulator. You're planting a tree, especially a bare root tree. You dig your hole. You get your all your stuff you're ready to plant the hole with. Miss some root stimulator onto the roots of that tree. Stimulate its initial rooting activity. Again, especially a bare root tree. So there's a lot you can do. You want to follow the directions and not overdo it with a commercial product because it's concentrated. You really have to go out of your way to overdo it with willow. Again, a big handful chopped up into a glass jar of water. And if you want to experiment and figure out, well, what works best, go to the store and buy some basil. Mix up some with a lot, some with a little, and uh try rooting directly into those two, and then try diluting down the little to even more and rooting into the third one and see which one produces the best result, and then use that as your personal ratio based on your willow tree, because your willow tree might be different than my willow tree. Your water might be different than my water, right? So you might end up with a different cut. I, I might cut it up in really small pieces. You might cut it up in big pieces. I don't know. I might have used more than I thought, and you might have used less than you thought. But you can play around with it, and it's harmless. And you can use anything as a test medium if it's a a plant known to root well. And if it causes one thing to root well, it will probably cause just about anything to root well because the basics of how that function works are pretty much the same. It's not like a blood type, where if I give you a transfusion, I either get it right or you're dead. You know, As long as I don't take too much out or put too much in, you're going to be okay. That's, That's the way to look at this. But it's real easy to do. And again, it's a great great skill to have and it's really not even a skill I mean frankly anybody can do this it doesn't take a lot of practice to be able to do this you could again go out and just strip some buds off and just mash it up into a paste and rub a little bit on the cutting and you'll pretty much get a pretty good result or you can seep the water and make willow water either way what you need to know is that it's possible what a willow tree looks like or where one is or plant one for yourself. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
1: To do. Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay. There's nobody up there cares, they're losing.